whenever uh, Lucy and Susan are nervously preparing to meet Aslan, they go and speak to Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And uh, the following conversation ensues. Is he a man? asked Lucy. Aslan a man? said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know he is the king of the beasts? Aslan is a lion. The lion. The great lion. Oh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie. And make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course, he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Of course, he isn't safe, but he's good. I'm, uh, I'm pretty sure we all recognise that dialogue from C.S. Lewis's most famous Narnia Chronicle, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. But this morning, as we uh, pick up from where we left off last week at the end of Exodus chapter 18... I want to make the point based on the next part of the story and on what happens in Exodus 19 that God is good, but please hear this, he is not safe. God is not tame. He is not easily or ever domesticated. In fact, God is dangerous. And that appreciation and that awareness should influence our concept of God and should certainly, as a result, impact our lives before God and with God. God is dangerous. One of, uh, one of my hopes for this morning is that when we walk out of here in the next sort of 20, 25 minutes or so, we'll walk out with a, a bigger understanding of the greatness and the holiness of God. We'll walk out of here with a kind of enlarged vision that dictates and determines how we approach God and how we prepare to engage with God on a daily or a regular basis. For those who who are visiting, and I realize there are quite a few here today, and and thank you to all those who have come this morning and joined us uh, to support and encourage Sarah and Barry in their baptisms. But this is our 11th Sunday morning and actually, or sadly, and maybe not for the time being, our last look at the life of Moses. And we have been retracing his story and the adventures of the children of Israel through the Old Testament book of Exodus. It's been quite a journey and I think we've discovered and we've learned lots. And last week we looked at one of the most significant and intriguing family reunions of all time. Whenever Moses met up again with his wife and his kids and his father-in-law. And we listened as as Jethro spoke into Moses' life and as Jethro helped him to readjust and realign his priorities. 
as Jethro encouraged him to give careful consideration to the use of his time and the use of his gifts, and also how he encouraged him to strongly think about the need to get delegate, to share the workload, to share the burden of leadership with others. And one of the key questions we asked out of last week was this, who is going to speak into our lives in 2013? Who's going to speak into your life this year? Who do you give permission to? To, like Jethro, observe your life and then offer you their reflections based on what they see. It's really important that we give permission to people to speak into our lives. But that was last week. This morning as we get into chapter 19, it's page 76 in the Pew Bibles if if you'd like to, to follow this. But we find that after about two months traveling through the wilderness en masse, and people reckon there was something like two million of these people, traveling en masse through the wilderness. And after about two months, we find them camped at the foot of Sinai. And it turns out that in a matter of days, God is going to meet with them. He's going to come down on Mount Sinai, in the sight of all the people. That's what it says in our text. This is a major watershed moment. The God who's rescued them from slavery, the God who's then saved them from certain death, from either drowning in the Red Sea or being massacred or recaptured by the Egyptian army, the God who's provided for their physical needs time and time again, despite their constant complaining. That God... Their God is going to appear. He's not only going to appear, he's going to speak into their lives individually and as a community. And he's going to do that via Moses, who was going to act as a mediator between God and the people. So this was massive, huge moment in history. And therefore, it's surely no big surprise that the people needed to prepare. Like if they're going to hear from Almighty God, if they're going to hear from him in the shadow of these great peaks that reached something like 8,000 feet heavenward like a gigantic fist, if they were going to be in God's immediate presence, if they're going to listen to this God, if they're going to learn from this God, if they're going to worship this God, then preparation was vitally important. And even before we kind of dig into this a little deeper, there's got to be something in this for us. Now, I know that our situation is different. Circumstances have changed primarily because of Jesus, and we'll come back to that. But whenever we come before God, and every one of us is before God this morning, whenever we come before God personally, individually, corporately, in prayer, in church, in small groups, at communion, There's always a place and a need for preparation. It's so good, it's so worthwhile to take time to consider who is it we're approaching? What exactly is it we're about to do here this morning? It's one of the reasons, for example, why in Scripture we're taught, listen, examine yourself before you eat this and drink this. Examine yourself. Prepare your heart. got to reflect on how we come to this table. 
And so even before we kind of look at this text and look at what did preparation mean for these people, let me ask you a question. How do you prepare to meet with God? How do you prepare to hear from God? How do you prepare to worship him? Or do we kind of just show up and turn up and hope for the best? Incredibly, God in his grace sometimes meets with us despite our lack of preparation. I often wonder, what would happen if I came before God better prepared? Let's go on. Before we go, or before we do, I have another question. How many times, a bit of general knowledge question, a bit of interaction, how many times did Moses go up and down Sinai? Now, if you've watched the Charlton Heston Ten Commandments film, it happens once. It's nonsense. It's not biblical. Anybody want to guess how many times Moses goes up and down Sinai? Anybody know? Go on, hazard a guess. Always up for the perfect number. Seven, brilliant, excellent. <laughs> yeah, you see, thing is, Moses was a fit guy for his age. Up and down seven times. He's at least 80-something, 90-something, 100-something. First time he ventures up, it's verse 3. So let's read a wee bit of the story together. What we often do here at Windsor is we stand for the public reading of God's word, so if that's okay, we'll stand together. <laughs> I'm just going to read about four verses, so don't worry, you'll not be standing long. Exodus 19, starting at verse 3. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant... Then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words, Moses, you are to speak to the Israelites. Grab a seat. You see, before the Israelites could meet with God, certain things were going to have to happen. Certain things needed to happen. Specific preparations were necessary. And the first one was this. There's got to be a willingness to obey. It's there in verse 5. Now, if you fully obey me and keep my covenant, then. You see, submission to God and surrender to him are vital. Absolutely vital. The Ten Commandments are kind of just round the corner. Exodus 20 follows Exodus 19. And then there is the rest of the law given in subsequent chapters. But what we mustn't miss here, and it's critical. This is a critical part of the Exodus story, the biblical story, God's story, our story is. And please hear this. Sinai came after the Red Sea. In other words, first redemption, then law. Saved, then called to obedience. And it's so important that we get that round the right way. This is one of the reasons why grace is grace. See, God didn't turn up to the Israelites and say, listen, I'm going to save you from Egypt if you keep my law. He didn't rescue on the basis of what they did or didn't do. Instead, God comes to his people full of mercy, full of compassion, full of grace. He saves them. 
by the blood of the Passover lamb, leads them through the Red Sea, then takes them to Sinai and gives them the law. Which then teaches them how they should live before God and with each other. Sequence is critical. God rescues, then calls us to obedience. Then God calls us to live lives of submission and surrender. And if there's anybody here who thinks that they've somehow got to earn God's favor, that that's what Sarah and Barry have done, that they've, they've earned, somehow done something to earn God's favor in order that they could do what they did this morning, then I want to assure you that they have done nothing, that God has done it all. God has loved them, and in Jesus, our Passover lamb, he has rescued them. They have accepted that. They have embraced that. And now they're called to live a life of obedience to that God. Back to the story. Moses heads down the mountain. And he goes back down with this message, this call to obedience, and he shares it with the people. And all the people respond positively. Look at verse 8. It's on the screen. The people all responded together. Here's what they said. We will do everything. Absolutely everything the Lord has said. And so Moses back up the mountain to take the people's reply to God. Then comes the next specific instruction regarding preparation. Verse 10. The Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day. Because on that day... The Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. So, in addition to a willingness to obey, there needed to be a commitment to holiness. You see, this was about clean hands and a pure heart. Now, I know we're not told how Moses consecrated the people, and there's little point in speculation. But even the whole washing of the garments ritual was understood to be symbolic of the importance of cleansing their hearts. This was God saying here, you need to address the mess and the filth that is built up as a result of you living in a fallen world where sin infects and pollutes you from the inside out. And for us today, and I know I'm kind of jumping back and forward, but as the people of God sitting here this morning, 13th January 2013, many of whom have been rescued and saved and redeemed, this process of consecration remains essential as we live in the presence of God absolutely believe that. A constant confession and a consistent awareness of the condition of our hearts and our minds is critical before God. And so as you and I prepare to pray, as we prepare to engage in our own personal devotions, as we prepare to come here and meet with others, to sing God's praises, to listen to his word, it's so important that we take time to wash. When was the last time I honestly and earnestly confessed my sin to God and renewed my commitment to holiness? When? As the psalmist would later reflect, who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can stand in his holy place? Great questions and then comes a great answer. Only those whose hands and hearts are pure. The Israelites needed to be committed to holiness, and so do we. 
And verse 14 tells us that after Moses had gone down the mountain to his people, he consecrated them and they washed their clothes. So they've bought into this as well. Then there's a third thing required. And the third thing was a deep respect for God's presence. You see, as you read this chapter, what you discover is that Sinai is a dangerous place. Like really dangerous. It's a place full of warnings. There were limits and deadly boundaries clearly set. Literally deadly boundaries. Look at verse 12. Here's what God says. Put limits for the people around the mountain. Tell them, be careful that you do not approach the mountain or you touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountains to be put to death, they're to be stoned or shot with arrows. See, anyone who casually rushes into God's presence was going to be history. Respect and reverence was not only important, it was also life-preserving. And again, a text like this, a chapter like this, reminds us that a big concept, a proper concept of God is absolutely essential. I've often referred to Tozer's inspirational and challenging comment when he said, what comes into our minds when we think of God as the most important thing about us? And therefore, it's so important that big and deep and profound and true and biblical thoughts come to mind because small ideas of God, and I fear sometimes that I've got a small idea of God, Small ideas of God not only serve to diminish the beauty of his holiness, but they also threaten to damage who we are. God deserves deep respect and reverence. Someone has said the heaviest obligation upon the Christian church is to purify and elevate her concept of God until it is once more worthy of him. What is my concept of God? I hope and pray that we as a church will always retain and foster a deep respect for the presence of God in our individual lives and in our community life. Back to the story because although I've said that Sinai was a dangerous place full of warnings, full of deadly boundaries, this whole idea of danger only intensifies whenever God shows up. Because God's coming is accompanied by explosive phenomena. Thunder roars, lightning flashes, dark cloud descends, there's smoke, there's fire everywhere, the mountain shakes when God shows up. And as the Israelites see a cloud, they know God is present. They've been led to this place by a pillar of cloud. And now, as this pillar has become this dark, dense cloud residing on the mountain, these people are in no doubt, God is here. This is holy ground. These are holy moments. And as they see the Lord descend in fire, it communicates the reality that he is a God of purity. And as we know, as we read elsewhere in Scripture, he is an all-consuming fire. And then as they listen to thunder, and it says that actually God answers Moses with 
thunder, there's a tangible reminder that God is powerful. He is present. He is pure. He is powerful. And nothing has changed. God still is. And what is the response here? Men and mountains tremble. According to verse 16, everyone trembles, they're gripped by fear. And verse 18 tells us that the whole mountain shook violently. You see, Sinai is a dangerous place. Why? Because God is a dangerous God. He's good, yes. But he's not safe. God is dangerous. Why? Because of his holiness, his righteousness, his awe-producing power. And if nothing else, and I know there is so much more that could be said and should be said about Exodus 19, but if nothing else, these events at this infamous mountain should expand and increase our concept of God, should jolt us out of this tendency to tame and domesticate God and remind us about the importance of how do I approach God with a willingness to obey, with a commitment to holiness, with a deep, deep respect for his presence. But as I get to the end of what I want to say, I'm nearly done. I kind of need to jump forward and in a sense complete our story as we connect this chapter to that table and to what just happened here at the start of our service. You see, although God met with Israel, He only spoke to them via a mediator, Moses. You see, Moses was the chosen one who stood in the gap between a holy God and sinful people. And throughout the Old Testament, those kind of human mediators were constantly required under that particular covenant. Prophets, priests who represented God to the people and the people to God. But with the birth, life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, a new day dawned. A new and a different relationship with the Holy God was made possible because according to Hebrews 8 verse 6, Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant than Moses and anyone else ever was or could be. Jesus and all that he accomplished through his life and his death is what reconnects us with God. And as the Bible says, there is only one mediator between God and human beings and that is the man Christ Jesus. And so God no longer meets us on holy mountains where lightning flashes and thunder roars and the ground shakes. Where does God meet us? He meets us in Jesus. The new covenant mediator. And that is how Barry and Sarah met God. Through Jesus. That's how they were reunited with him in relationship. It was through Jesus. It was because of Jesus. And so as they ate and as they drank this morning along with many others, they consistently want to remember the death of Jesus on their behalf. Because it's because of Jesus they are now in relationship with God. They're in his immediate and intimate presence. He is their father. And they have publicly confirmed that before us this morning. That they have received ultimate forgiveness in Jesus. And are now choosing to live lives of obedience and holiness and deep respect. And for some reason... They wanted us to know that this morning. That's why they did it publicly. Back to Exodus 19. Let me ask you this. 
Is God now safe because of Jesus? Is God now safe because of Jesus? I don't think so. He's more accessible. But God is still dangerously holy, righteous and powerful. And as the New Testament says, it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. God's not safe. And because of Jesus, should we forget about these things? No. Again, I don't believe so. Obedience, holiness, reverence are still essential. And so as we leave here this morning, I hope and pray, we'll take with us a slightly enlarged view of a good God who isn't safe. And therefore that will affect how we worship him. But also we will give thanks for a mediator greater than Moses who means we can be saved, we can be rescued, we can be friends of an amazing, almighty and dangerous God. Let's pray together. And what I want to do just as I'm praying is uh, I want to give you an opportunity just to respond in your own hearts. And if you're here this morning and you in a sense want to say before God, God, I want to obey you. I want to recommit to holy living. And I want to live in such a way that reflects a deep respect of you. Then I invite you just to take an opportunity now in the quietness of these moments, in the quietness of your own heart, to offer a prayer to God along those lines. Almighty, dangerous God. I want to do what pleases you. I want to recommit my life to holiness. Because I recognize the call on my life to be holy as you are holy, which is an incredible call. And may everything I say and do speak of a deep respect I have for you, God. In Jesus' name I pray.